This idea that I had actually when I was 18 in 1972 to become a psychedelic therapist and try to bring back um, psychedelic research and integrate psychedelics into the culture, kind of a you know 60s hippie idea that I had when I was 18 in 1972. That uh, I've you know turned 60 last year and it, it still seems like a really good idea. That's Wolfpeck playing their hit tune, Fugue State. I don't know if it's a hit tune. I never heard of it until I got an email a couple days ago from a guy named Jack Stratton, who uh, said that uh, he and the band, um, uh, what was the way, how do you say it? We bump, he said, we're, we're all fans of your podcast. We bump it in the tour van. So very cool of them to let me use the music. Uh, again, it's called Fugue State, and the band is Wolfpeck with a V, uh, V-U-L-F-P-E-C-K. I imagine that's German for Wolfpack, but I'm just taking a shot in the shot in the dark there. Not really sure. So the gray days have come to Portland. Uh, that beautiful, glorious summer I've mentioned in previous episodes is now officially over. Seems like it coincided with uh, the end of daylight savings time. I'm not sure if it happens that way every year, but it's been uh, gray and drizzly here since I got back from Spain uh, a while ago, and uh, so we're we're socking in for the winter. Apologies for my voice. I still have this cold, and as you'll hear in this episode, um, I had it much worse a few weeks ago. I sound like I'm at the bottom of the sea. I'm not sure what's going on there. I don't know if I'm allergic to Portland or, uh, you know, whatever. My lungs are just about to uh, expire. Maybe I need a lung transplant. In any case, uh, the episode is it's with a wonderful guy, very, I think, an important historical figure. He will be. Uh, Rick Doblin, he's the founder and, uh, I forget what his title is, Chief Executive Financial Officer or something of uh, MAPS, M-A-P-S, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, I've been involved with MAPS since my first term in graduate school, which was way back in, I don't even know when the hell that was, in the 90s at some point. Um, I had a class in, um, the first term I had a class in addiction, and I had studied um, ethnobotany, you know, the the use of sacred plants by cultures around the world. I'd had quite a bit of experience myself with various uh, altered state-inducing drugs, and um, so I I went into this class thinking this is going to be some asshole professor who's gonna you know toe the party line tell us all drugs are bad and addiction's a disease and yada 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 and it's gonna be this is gonna be a painful experience for both he and I both him and me I guess is the right way to say that um, because 
I know my shit here and I'm not going to just sit back and let this guy spew misinformation. Well, first day of class, he there were like 30 students. He said, um, please raise your hand if you were uh, raised in what you would consider, but one of your parents was either a drug addict or an alcoholic. And about half the people in the class raised their hands. And he said, okay, those of you who haven't raised your hands, please raise your hand if you would consider one or, no, if you would consider your family to be um, uh, severely dysfunctional. At that point, everyone in the room had their hand up except me. And he said, um, I just wanted you to see that most people who come to a graduate school like this to get a degree in clinical psychology are coming from a place of trauma. And that the trauma that you have suffered, the same trauma that led you to this place, uh, distorts your vision of things. And you are going to have a tendency to see other people's struggles always in terms of your own. And I thought that was a very insightful thing to say, very interesting. Uh, and this guy went on to, to prove himself to be an extremely insightful man, very knowledgeable, not at all uh, the, the spewer of bullshit that I was expecting. And we became friends. He, uh, another interesting uh, thing that happened there was, um, well, okay, before I get to the other interesting thing, the reason I'm talking about this guy is that he hooked me up with maps because after one of the classes, I went up and chatted with him. And um, at some point we became friends and he said, you should really check out this group maps uh, who have a very positive view of the potential, the healing and uh, clinical potential for psychedelics. Uh, and this guy, Rick Doblin, who's busting his ass trying to get these things legalized for clinical and research um protocols in the United States and which at that time in the mid to late nineties just seemed like an absolute pipe dream. And, uh, as you'll hear in this, in our conversation, uh, I've known Rick since then, basically I started writing for the, the journal doing a little, you know, whatever I could do to help out. And, uh, then Rick, I met Rick personally, I was visiting my sister in Boston and, I uh, got an email from him a couple weeks later saying, hey, what are you doing in September? And I said, uh, I don't know, probably nothing. You know, I was living in Spain at that time. And he said, well, we need someone at a, a conference we're sponsoring in Israel who speaks Spanish and English because there's a Spanish scientist who's going to be there. And uh, if you're interested, I'd love to fly you down to Israel for this ecstasy conference at the Dead Sea Hyatt. <laughs> and I was like, fuck yeah, man. Uh, you know, all expenses paid trip to Israel. So that was my only, that's still the only time I've been to Israel for this ecstasy conference where everyone, pretty much everyone in the world who was working uh, with MDMA was at the conference to compare notes uh, on toxicity, on uh, therapeutic potential, on, you know, whatever angle of research you can imagine. One of the things that was very interesting is that the sponsor, the, the conference was partly sponsored by the Israeli military. So there were a bunch of um, upper level, you know, generals and so on at the hanging out at the conference, which was kind of strange. Um, but the story was that they were very interested in 
the potential of MDMA to treat PTSD in soldiers who uh, had been traumatized in one way or another in the war. Some of the questions that they were asking led me to think that maybe they were also interested in using MDMA in interrogations, which was troubling in some ways, but in other ways, you know, if you're going to be interrogated by the Israeli military, um, some MDMA in your water might be uh, a far better alternative than whatever else they have in mind. So I, I don't know. Ethically, that's an interesting question. Back to this professor. Uh, his name was Paul. I don't remember his last name. Um, but uh, one day he was talking about how people come to your office and they're sent there because their boss or the police or their wife or somebody says to this alcoholic, drug addict, whatever, look, you either get therapy or you go to prison or we're getting divorced or whatever. There's an ultimatum involved. So a lot of the people who will come to your office are angry. They're aggressive. Uh, there's a lot of uh, negative energy directed toward you as the therapist. And he said, you, you know, you really can't let that affect you because it has nothing to do with you personally. And if you, if you fall for that, let that energy impact you, you'll be completely useless in, in working with this person. And what you really need to do is find a way to stay centered and use that energy, sort of turn that energy back around and, and use it to help this person, even though they don't want your help. And I said, that sounds, is that, that sounds like Aikido, right? And he said, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting connection. Um, hey, stay, talk to me after class and we can talk about that. So I went up after class and he said, listen, uh, I can't say this, you know, these, this school pays my bills. I can't say this to the whole class, but if you want to understand uh, <clears throat> psychology, you want to understand how people think and how to interact and help people, you will learn more from studying Aikido than you'll learn in any doctoral program in psychology in any school in the world. He said, I've been studying Aikido for 20 years, and it's, it's enriched my life intellectually, spiritually, uh, and physically more than anything else. Um, you should really check it out. Now, this is in San Francisco, so there are lots of good Aikido schools there. I said, look, I can't, I don't have any money, right? I'm borrowing student loan money to come to the school. I'm living on next to nothing. I'm working days and coming here weekends and nights. It's like, can't do it. And he said, um, listen, go, this is the name and number of my professor. He's very famous, big professor in San Francisco. Uh, just go. The first class is always free. Just go check it out, meet him, you know, see what happens. So I go to the, the school. The guy's name was Richard Moon was the teacher, I remember. And he had uh, some problem with his hands. His, his hands were deformed, I think, um, congenital deformation. But uh, he was, you know, very uh, upper level black belt, had studied in Japan and so on. And, and uh, so he led this the class and I, I participated. And um, then at the end of the class, he came over and he said, well, what'd you think? You want to continue this? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. But uh, as I told your friend Paul, I don't have money for this. But I just, but it, you know, it was great to come and check it out. And, and he said, look, Classes cost whatever it was, 10 bucks a class. Um, you're welcome to come to as many classes as you want. Keep track of how many you come to. And someday when you have money, send me a check for what you owe me. 
And if I'm dead or he can't find me, give the money to, to someone who needs it. So that was how I started Aikido. And, uh, you know, that is a very Aikido approach to things. That sense of, you know, you want to do this? Uh, you're welcome to come. Money, we can find a way around that. We can find a way to work with that energy. It doesn't have to block what we're trying to do here. And uh, since then, I studied Aikido in San Francisco and Barcelona. And uh, maybe I'll start again here in Portland soon if I can clear my lungs. So Rick Doblin, hope you enjoy getting to know him a little bit. He's a fantastic guy. And I think uh, thousands of, of our descendants will look back and thank him for talking some sense into the United States government and the scientific community as far as the healing potential of, of psychedelics goes. Um, quickly, before I go, thank you to Carsey Blanton for Smoke Alarm. As always, check her out, carseyblanton.com. You can get her music for a contribution. Shore Design t-shirts, as always, the best t-shirt manufacturer on the planet. Shoredesigntshirts.com. Uh, sex at dawn all one word at checkout you get 10 percent off your order you can also get the the sex at dawn shirt the civilized to death shirts with all the shirts we've got there at the store at chris ryan phd.com where you'll also find a link to the reddit uh forum where you can talk about the podcast uh donation button if you want to drop some money in the tip jar the Amazon link, if you click through that, will get 2 or 3% of whatever you spend on uh, your Amazon visit. And check out Kotango, K-O-T-A-N-G-O, if you want to meet people who are interested in ethical, non-bullshit, non-lying, non-monogamy. Kotango.com. Hey, thanks to the folks at Ergo Depot, by the way. Ergodepot.com, E-R-G-O-D-E-P-O-T.com for this fantastic desk that I'm sitting in front of right now that goes up and down, although it hasn't gone up as much as it should recently because I've been lazy and sitting. But anytime I want to stand up, I just push a button and the whole thing just goes and rises up. It's fantastic. Very cool. So thanks to all those people and to Wolfpack and to you, especially my dear listeners for listening. I really appreciate it. All right. I am honored to have Rick Doblin here with me. The uh, what, what are you? The CEO, the founder, the president? I know you're <laughs> the MAPS guy. You are the, the driving force behind MAPS. But beyond that, what, what's your official title? Um, executive director. Executive director. Wow. Yeah. I was president for a while, but that seemed like a little presumptuous. And then I had an assistant, and it didn't seem like vice president was quite right. So assistant, <laughs> deputy director. Uh, so that's when I changed to executive director and founder, of course, as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I, I don't, I'm not going to blow a lot of smoke up your ass, but I, I have to say how proud I am to know you and to have known you like sort of through a lot of the process. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you know, I've got as much time as you want for you to say how great things about me. I, I can wait to, to tell my other stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, why don't you go have a coffee and I'll just talk for a while about how great you are. Um, <laughs> no, actually, I, I've already done that in an in introduction that I've recorded separately, so you'll have to listen to the podcast to really get that stuff. Oh, okay, I will. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but no, I, I was just saying that, you know, when I met you, which was 99, I think, or 98, yeah. some, when was the Israel trip, the ecstasy conference? Um, actually, I'd have to check. I think it was 98. Yeah. So that, that's, I met you probably six months before that. And, uh, you know, you had been banging your head against a wall for a long time already at that point. Well, um, actually, you know, the work that I did started in around 83. Right. Um, once it was pretty clear that, um, well, I learned about MDMA in 82. And at the time that I learned about it, you know, it was already being sold as ecstasy as well as being sold as Adam. Adam being the word used in the underground psychedelic therapy community. And so once I learned about it, and also knew that it was ecstasy being used in public settings at the time that Nancy Reagan was escalating the drug war. It was pretty clear that it was going to become criminalized at some point. So I started politically in 83 and was prepared in 84 once the DEA started trying to criminalize MDMA and you know that led into the a different the prior nonprofit before MAPS and we used that to sue the DEA to block the criminalization of the therapeutic use. And, you know, we won in the administrative law judge court and then DEA rejected the recommendation of the administrative law judge. And then we won twice in the appeals court and then finally lost. And so in 86, I started MAPS because it seemed like the only way to bring back the legal use of the therapeutic use of MDMA was through the FDA and through science and research um, and then it, when we met, um, you know, we were still struggling to try to start the first therapeutic study. Yeah. And it, um, you know, it happened in Spain, as you know, in 2000. And it was heartbreaking in 2002. And after some positive media about the project in Madrid with women survivors of rape and assault, with post-traumatic stress disorder, that the positive media about it mobilized the opposition, the Madrid Anti-Drug Authority, and they shut it down, and we weren't able to really open it up again. Um, at the time, we just weren't politically powerful enough in Spain, and um, and it took till 2004, so to before we could start the first study of the therapeutic use of MDMA in the United States, the first one that we could continue. So. Right, right now it's actually twenty eight years since I started MAPS. That's amazing. <laughs> and, well, um, I mean, that's friend, the, yeah, yeah. Well, your, I'll, I'll, your persistence is just incredible. That you just kept plowing and plowing. I mean, as I said, banging your head against a wall, and you know, amazingly, it's the wall that's breaking before your head. It's incredible. It, it's true. Um, at the same time, you know, I don't have that many good ideas, and I thought this <laughs> this was a really good idea. Why? You know, nothing else seemed any more important or better. Yeah. And I, I was able to find some... Um, I think the, the crucial thing for me was to be able to enjoy the process. And even though the outcome was unclear and there was just so much opposition that it just felt like this is what I needed to do. And so I could just keep on doing it. And And it is really true. I think that now... This idea that I had actually when I was 18 in 1972 to become a psychedelic therapist and try to bring back um, psychedelic research and integrate psychedelics into the culture, kind of a 
you know, 60s hippie idea that I had when I was 18 in 1972 that uh, I've, you know, turned 60 last year and it, it still seems like a really good idea. So I, I've not had a better idea in, um, you know, 42 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's good that you had your best idea early in life <laughs> and that you recognized it. Imagine if you'd been chasing second best all this time. Oh, it'd be sad. Yeah, there was actually one moment at Aslan. This was in the late 80s when I was standing at the cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And I just entertained this idea for a moment. I was like, well, who would I be if I wasn't interested in psychedelics, if that wasn't what I organized my life around? And I'd never, I hadn't thought about that, you know, for, for uh, since 1972. So it was like, you know, 17 years about... And, and I felt this kind of um, whirlpool almost, like this, like conf this, like fear of, of, like who would I be if I didn't have this organizing principle? Almost like it was pulling me over the cliff, you know, to destruction. You know, who would I be? And and um, I, I really couldn't think of anything else. And since then, you know, I've not asked that question. It just still continually seems right. And and I think um, you know, for many of us psychedelics have stood the test of time and also have different purposes throughout the lifespan. It's not just, you know, something that young people do and then give up in their 20s when they start jobs and families. Yeah, when they get serious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the way you're describing it sounds so much like a marriage. You know, the, the, in terms of the role it's played in your own life, you know, looking, having this moment where you say, well, who would I be if I weren't in relationship with this entity, right? Yeah. I, this yeah. is sort of formed, I, I formed around this in a way, or my personality's formed in the context of this relationship. And then when you said that it, it fulfills different roles at different points in your life, that's true as well, right? The, the sort of changing relationship as you age. Yeah, I feel it's it is very true. It's like a, a marriage with a mission. Yeah, yeah. That's really helped define who I am. And you know that your partner is going to outlive you in this case. Well, yes, uh, and that's very fortunate because um, I'd say there was this crucial um, crisis of confidence. Perhaps um, we could say maybe. Um, about uh, 10, 12 years ago, when it was clear that what I was trying to do was not going to be accomplished in my lifetime, and that this was really a you know multi generational effort, the you know which which in a way I see as um, being centuries in the making from when uh, Copernicus and you know Galileo were um, censored by the church, you know for their new ideas and kind of religion and. Um, spirituality and science went different directions and and now it feels like they're coming together mm. that once I realized that you know my my younger hopes at age 18 were not going to be fully realized in my lifetime and I was um, beset a little bit with this question you know is this vision of the integration of psychedelics into culture and the importance of doing that um, you know, is 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 that? Oh, sorry. 
um, is, is that something that the younger generations would appreciate? You know, is it just something from the 60s, like this historical anomaly that, mm. you know, was caught up in the whole, you know, enthusiasm for psychedelics in the 60s, and then once the crackdown happened, you know, would, would current young people see this as a naive thought and that really psychedelics ha- don't have this, you know, power and potential that, that I was thinking that they they had and that I based my life work on. And, um, and fortunately, right around that time, I taught a class at college, at New College, the school that I had uh, graduated from. And after I got my PhD, I went back, and this was the uh, January of 2001, where I just taught a month-long independent workshop. And, and I realized that the young people and the new generations, some of them did share this view, that it wasn't just this, you know, idealistic but wrong-headed idea of the hippies in the 60s, and that it, it really, the work would be carried on by the next generations. And then I started realizing how foolish it was that I was even doubting it, because these drugs have been around for thousands of years, and people have valued them in innumerable ways. And actually, our, our culture is an anomaly in the way that we've suppressed them. You know, the drug war and this whole prohibition instinct is is not the natural state of being. It's more of um, a weird uh, and counterproductive cultural overreaction. So, so now I feel a lot more relaxed about it, so that the work um, will continue on down the generations. Do you think, is there an essential conflict between psychedelics and civilization? That's a great question, and I absolutely think no. And I think that was one of the key mistakes of the 60s, was this idea that those people who were um, advocates and involved with psychedelics were inherently countercultural, and that that set up an opposition that was destructive and when you, you, you sort of define yourself as the outside rebel, the counterculture rebel, you know, waging war against the system, the system is bigger, and it just re- resisted um, in such a way that it was destructive, both to the counterculture and to the culture. So now I think the arc of my life has been that age 18, I was a uh, counterculture drug-using criminal, <laughs> You know, I, I was a draft resistor to Vietnam. I was using illegal drugs. I, I did see myself as um, on the outside. And over the last 42 years, these us and them dichotomies have collapsed. I think a big part of it, of course, was my getting accepted um, to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and getting my master's and PhD there as sort of the, um, you know, center of establishment thinking and credibility. Uh, But I think that um, the kind of forward-looking, challenging of status quo thinking that can be generated by psychedelics and the the ways in which Timothy Leary and others talked about it as, you know, um, challenging uh, existing systems that a healthy society and a healthy civilization has people that are considered scouts, and they go out and look at the new territory over the horizon, and then they come back and report back, and then that helps the society decide, you know, which ways to go. But we've kind of, at least in the 60s, sort of criminalized these scouts. And so I think it's... um, 
you could say that psychedelics um, don't go well with unhealthy civilizations that have become too rigid and fundamentalist. Um, I'm not sure, by the way, if you can hear the rain. It's just now um, oh, is that rain? Wow. coming down pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, the counter, this kind of clash, it's between unhealthy civilizations that don't have ways to bring in change. But I, I am strongly and firmly of the belief that um, we can integrate psychedelics and psychedelic experiences into our culture and our civilization, and it will be healthy for the civilization and healthy for the scouts and that there is no inherent contradiction and i think with timothy leary and others he you know he went to west point he was um part of the mainstream but he rebelled against it and and he was kicked out of west point so he he could have chosen to stay at harvard but he kind of felt more comfortable leaving so i think it was a matter of certain personalities that framed the use of psychedelics as somehow inherently corrosive of um, establishment mm. thinking. But don't, I don't, don't think you, that's the case. Isn't there something um, innately contradictory in the sense that civilization relies upon uh, hierarchies and uh, a lot of sort of mindless following of orders? Uh, whereas psychedelics lead you to question all authority and to seek a direct relationship with the transcendent and so on and so forth. It, I mean, I see what you're saying about how they can be a healthy input to uh, a thriving society. But I, I also feel that there's something fundamentally inhuman about civilization on the scale at which we're talking about now. Mm. And well, psychedelics I rebel against that. Well, I, I do think that there are really negative aspects to our civilization. That we look around, you know, the uh, extinction of species, the degradation of the environment, the rise of fundamentalism, yeah. you know, the, the incredible persistence of violence as a way to mediate disputes. So that there, there are a lot of things in our civilization that I think are destructive and, and need to be corrected. But, but to have that view that that will always be the case and that somehow there's an inherent aspect of, um, of this questioning that belongs outside of the, the civilization process, that civilization can't handle it, um, I don't think is true. And I think if we, we reflect on our own lives, there's, um, and even what psychedelics do, you know, th that there are so much that we've got on autopilot. And in terms of just all of the functioning that, that we do physically that help us move through the world and, you know, the way that, um, you know, super athletes, you know, have gotten things that are, you know, their motions, their actions, their responses are, are, are below the level of awareness, but they're just, you know, on autopilot. And that helps them to do higher functioning things. So I think it's a question of what are those things that are on autopilot and are they healthy and do they have the feedback system so that when something changes you can also respond. Um, so I, I think that civilization as a whole clearly needs a course correction. Mm. Um, you know, I, I go back a lot to um, Albert Einstein who, who said that uh, you know, the splitting of the atom has changed everything except our mode of thinking, and hence we drift towards unparalleled catastrophe. What shall be required if 
mankind is to survive is a whole new mode of thinking. And what is that mode of thinking? I, in my view, it's this sort of mystical sense of connection and oneness that will lead us to appreciate people that are different, to not dehumanize the other, that will lead us to cooperate and appreciate and celebrate differences because fundamentally we're more the same and not just human life but all life on the planet and life life in the universe and i think if we can um bring about that new mode of thinking that then psychedelics can be both an integral part of bringing about that new mode and can sustain it so i i would say i guess in response to your your concerns about this um Potentially, because if there is this inherent conflict between civilization and the um, challenging of the status quo that psychedelics can produce, then there's less hope that we can integrate psychedelics, that they'll always be this suppressed, marginal aspect. And, you know, if we look in the history of shamanism, there is this sense, too, that the shamans are often on the outside of, mm. you know, culture. But at the same time, many cultures have shamans as the core. Yeah. So I, I don't think that it's a doomed quest that because we have these tools of uh, transformation that, that there's always going to be this conflict. And also I, I would say that these tools are not as powerful as we think that they are and that culture is more powerful. So the context, the set and setting. So if, we, if you look at these, some of these ayahuasca churches that use this incredible tool for opening up they're still encased often in these uh, syncretic religious contexts that are heavily uh, catholic they're hierarchical homophobic um, patriarchal systems that these ayahuasca religions have you know emerged from this kind of culture so the culture dominates um, over the psychedelics Along those lines, are you concerned at all about the the rise of ayahuasca tourism and the commercialization of of this sort of experience? Well, I, just last week I was at the World Ayahuasca Conference in Ibiza, and that was one of the big topics of conversation: is how how do we uh, view the ayahuasca tourism? And what we've seen, and there was over uh, six hundred and fifty people from over fifty countries. The conference was a phenomenal success, um, but there was this um, growing concern about the abuses that are taking place, sexual abuse of mostly women that, that come down to Peru and ayahuasca for ayahuasca tourism. There's a lot of profiteering. There's competition between the shamans uh, you know, for the business. There's been cases of... Um, people dying from ayahuasca and then the shamans burying their body and not telling the family and then that came out. There's even been a um, tragic situation of a um, Charlie Manson-like cult using ayahuasca that committed murder and then in the court case, you know, everybody's blaming ayahuasca. And at the same time, there's just been an, an amazing number of people who are part of what you would say is this conventional civilization, some of the movers and shakers, leaders of this conventional civilization who've been um, inspired by their ayahuasca experiences to turn more philanthropic than mercenary, than, than monetary, 
Um, so I, I think what's necessary, there, there definitely are reasons to be concerned about ayahuasca tourism. On the other hand, if you look at the good that's being done, I think it outweighs the, the bad. But what's necessary, and MAPS is actually fiscal sponsor for this group called the Ethnobotanical Stewardship Council. And it's an attempt to create a self-regulatory process like fair trade or um, other kind of um, organic you know, certifications mm. that the industries create to um, you know, protect what they're doing. That I think in the absence of full social acceptance, we need to be moving forward with these self-regulatory processes to try to educate people about where are the shamans and the clinics and the centers acting in a responsible way where they're not so responsible. How do we provide feedback and ratings so people can have more information about where they're heading? Um, and, and I do think that there's this kind of naive sense that um, both if something's from the plants, it's it's really better than if it's synthetic, but also people from our own culture where we've largely lost track of spiritual experiences, you know, going to other cultures and somehow thinking that um, that they'll be genuine and profound spirituality in a different cultural context than they grew up in. And we, we don't often give... Um, full acknowledgement to the fact that these cultures really are different than ours in quite a lot of different ways and that um, we need to find ways in our own cultural context. So I guess to say, um, personally, I am somewhat concerned about the, the problems that are coming from ayahuasca tourism, but I think the spread and diffusion of ayahuasca from the Amazon throughout the Western world has been incredibly positive. Mm. And overall, you know, we're not going to find anything that's pure, pure benefit. You know, there's always risks and benefits mixed together. And yeah. uh, how, how do we address those risks in a way that forestalls the criminal justice system from just prohibiting it all? Yeah. Which is pretty much where we're at. You, you mentioned someone died from ayahuasca. I, I hadn't heard that, that that was possible. Was it can you die from an overdose? or Well, it's not exactly clear. I mean, what, what happened was this young man, I mean, a young, healthy guy, teenager, actually, um, I believe, really young, um, went down to an ayahuasca treatment center, and they had a, their process, which is somewhat similar to what happens um, in the Native American tradition of, uh, in other traditions in Australia. Australia, you know, the walkabout, the vision quest. So th their approach was that people would take ayahuasca and go off into these little huts and spend the night by themselves. Mm. And they went in the morning and this one guy was dead. And, you know, how exactly he died, I don't think it's clear. But the shaman in a panic um, buried him and didn't tell the family. It's just like he disappeared. And then it took a couple of weeks before they figured out what, what happened. And then the shaman finally confessed and dug up the body. And so somebody did die on one of these um, mm. ayahuasca retreats. It could have been uh, a snake bite or anything. Um, yeah. I mean, ayahuasca itself, you know, it's like we don't hear anybody dying from LSD or psilocybin. Yeah. Um, we do occasionally hear people dying from ibogaine, from iboga. 
So that I would say is is the most um, dangerous so far of all these plant-based psychedelics. Um, and ayahuasca is tremendously you know safe in the sense that you know many 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 people have taken it and. There's just these few. I've even heard actually, Stan Groff actually, when I first went to Esalen um, in 1982, it was right after somebody had died under the influence of LSD at Esalen. And it, it was something that I studied quite a bit because when you use these drugs, there's this ego death um, experience, this kind of um, movement to the transcendent from the personal to the transpersonal. And it's often experienced as um, a defense of physical death. People feel that they're physically dying. And it's ra- rather difficult to, to relax that and to recognize that as a symbolic death. Again, back to Copernicus and Galileo, it's the idea of the ego no longer being the center of the universe. Mm. It's, it's often the center of who we are, but it's, it's... And the ego doesn't really die. We always are who we are, but, but it becomes... Um, a minor player in a in a bigger universe, um, and the self, the sort of spiritual, infinite self of this mystical connection, is, is sort of the primary, and then the ego is is subsidiary to that. So, I ended up trying to do a lot of um, investigations on my own. There was the family of this woman that died was suing Esalen and suing Stan Graf, um, even though Stan didn't know this person at all. It was a work scholar at Esalen. But but something about the um, the mind body connection, um, and it seemed in a way like this death, which was extraordinarily rare. Somebody who was um, doing an eyes closed, eye shades, uh, inner experience with LSD um, died during the course of that, and and just the the sitters, you know, thought she was having a psychological breakthrough, and then noticed that she'd stop breathing. And died, and and it seemed like a death from fear that that she was confronting a lot of things. She wanted to escape. She wanted to leave the setting. She wanted to run outside. And Esalen is on the cliffs, as I've said. It's a dangerous place to be running around. Yeah. And they um, told her that she couldn't couldn't leave. She had to stay there. And so she stayed inward. But so I I, I think there's this um, very very r- rare situation where, where people may be. W- able consciously to choose death um, in these powerful altered states. And, and I felt like, for me, what I wanted to know is how do you choose the ego death? How do you choose this um, surrendering to what is without it you know, leading to actual death? And, and I at least concluded for myself that if you are willingly going into it, um, you know, even though there's a lot of fear, but if you're sort of choosing to explore rather than choosing to escape, um, that, that you'll come out of it fine. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Ibogaine. Uh, I have a friend who just last week had an experience with the shaman, and uh, my understanding of the situation is that uh, probably 12, 15 hours later, the, he was seemed to be fine, and the shaman left. And then he collapsed. My friend collapsed and was unconscious for two days in his apartment. Um, and he collapsed in a way that cut off circulation to his legs. And um, so when he was found two days later, he was taken to the hospital. He was in an induced coma for 
over a week and they don't know if he's going to lose his legs at this point. It's oh a God. horrible situation. And as you say, this is a young, strong guy. Um, and I'd never heard of anything. I'm not as familiar with Ibogaine, but I'd never heard of anything like that. It certainly seems like a, a bit of malpractice to be leaving someone alone like that. Because Ibogaine, you're talking about 72 hours or something of a fast, right? right? Oh, yeah, right. right. I mean, I, I did that in 1985, and it was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had and very important to me personally. Um, you know, just to, to contrast it with our um, psychedelic research that we're doing with the FDA and institutional review boards around the world, um, we have our sessions uh, usually start at 10 in the morning and end by around 6 o'clock, so they're about eight-hour sessions. But then people are required to spend the night in the treatment center, and there's the therapist may leave, but then a night attendant comes in. Yeah. And then the very next morning, there's hours of integrative psychotherapy reviewing what happened the day before and really trying to do even deeper work and, and, and looking at some of the issues. And, and now that people are down, it's, it's, it's really important, the integration process. And then... Uh, in the afternoon, people can go home, but they can't drive. And once they get home, um, we have a phone call with them every day for a week. Mm. Sometimes five minutes, sometimes 15 minutes, depending, just to talk about what's going on to help them really continue with the integration process. So we're very careful in the research setting not to have gaps where people are unsupervised. Yeah. And to... to really recognize that in in a way you could say one of the fundamental differences between the recreational use of psychedelics and the therapeutic is that in the recreational use people are looking for you know having a really fun wonderful experience and what happens during the time that they're under the influence of the the drug is what's the most important that's what they're they're going for but in the therapeutic experience it's what people bring back and how they integrate that into their daily lives and how they're changed on a long-term basis, hopefully with whatever clinical problems that we were working with them to address have been reduced over time. And so I think it's that focus on what people bring back that really keeps us grounded in the safety as well because there's all sorts of contact after the experience is over on a frequent daily basis, just checking in with people. You know, when you're talking about the therapeutic measures that you take and the, the care and the, the structure that you've designed around these experiences in your, in your research uh, settings, it strikes me that in a way that's the way our culture expresses respect. And, and uh, the sacred, that's the way we confront the sacred, with structure and care, and it's, it's ritualistic in a sense. Uh, well, yeah, and it gets actually back to what you talked before about things being, um, you know, somehow or other um, standardized and, you know, in this way of being, um, you know, you know, in some ways you talked about it as a negative, right, this idea that that um, there's these procedures that are, you know, replicated without uh, mindful attention and that 
you know, that, that those are, and they ossify into kind of fundamentalist approaches and that psychedelics, you know, challenge that kind of, and where I was trying to get at this idea of, um, you know, people's athletes and others, things that are on cruise control. It's, there is a role for structure. There is a role for, um, trying to standardize things that we've learned in, in these moments of creation where everything is fluid and people are, open to the the new and the novel and are, are really exploring and then trying to bring back things that then become uh, ritualized and standardized and can actually, you know, add structure and strength to what one is doing. So it's, it's, it's either way. It, it could be positive, it could be negative. And that's where I think that the, um, the role of, you know, psychedelics, particularly in, in psychotherapy, particularly with the scientific overview. So for me, there's a very sacred aspect to scientific procedures, mm-hmm. that it's not science on the one hand and spirituality and religion on the other. And I felt that the most strongly, actually this was 1985 also, um, when the prior nonprofit before MAPS, we were funding studies in the dog and the rat, uh, toxicity studies that were the baseline requirement for getting into humans with the FDA. And I happened to um, feel responsible for the killing of a bunch of these dogs. And so I, I went down to the um, lab where the study was being done, and it, it turned out the day I went to visit was the day that they were euthanizing and autopsying a bunch of these dogs. And I felt on the one hand, um, this, um, you know, I saw them inject these dogs with the, whatever chemical it was that caused them to die. And it, we were in the basement of this multi-story hospital. Um, and it just felt like here we were crowded around these dogs and they, they were injected. And then just a second or so, they just crumple over and they're dead. And then a minute or so later, they're on the autopsy table being taken apart. And they were doing four dogs at a time. And uh, at first I thought, wow, this mystery of life and death, it, it, like, it was awesome. And it was um, beyond all of our capabilities to understand fully. And then the procedures of science, of trying to weigh and standardize and... Um, you know, understand what happened to the different cells in their bodies and the way we were, you know, it felt like this pathetic attempt to try to come to grips with this awesome mystery. And yet there was something sacred about the procedures where we tried to get over our own biases and find what was really there. It was a search for truth also. And so I I felt that this... um, scientific process had a sacred element to it and i think a lot of scientists feel that way as well and and also the kind of procedures that we set up in the therapeutic settings they are a way to show respect and to um make something long term come out of it they're 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 an, an appreciation in a way for the um transformative potential of these non-ordinary states of consciousness mm-hmm. and the recognition that really it's just a potential. It doesn't automatically come from taking the drug, that, that there has to be 
the preparation work and the integration work and the interpretation and all of that together, you know, if we're lucky, people can grow and become healthier. Yeah. And, and this might be one of the areas where these substances can be very helpful in altering the course of civilization in the sense that it, by, by making it tangible that these things cannot be reduced to pills and a good time and a throwaway, easy experience where you're just going to have a blast and, you know, learn a bunch and it's all easy and there's no work required. And I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, we, the, the same way we've taken uh, coca leaves and turned them into cocaine or, you know, so many other uh, complex, nuanced um, plants and experiences mm -hmm. and tried to reduce them to something, you know, easily packaged and sold and replicated. Uh, these experiences resist that, and and it, that can be dangerous. I think. I mean, that approaching them without the respect and the sort of holistic appreciation for what you're saying, the whole process, coming to it with respect and integrating and caring for the experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we we see. Um, I guess the best example of this for me is that. Um, that within a relatively short amount of time, um, about 10 years ago, I was approached by two different women, one of whom said that she had um, taken MDMA at a rave and had remembered uh, you know, being raved before. And this, this whole process came to her, but she was with a bunch of her friends and they were all out to have a party. And, you know, they had done MDMA for, for recreational purposes. And she felt that she couldn't really talk to them about this more serious experience, what she was going through, because they were just out to have fun. And so she suppressed that, those memories and tried not to deal with it. And then it had lasting negative consequences for her that... Once it sort of emerged and she tried to suppress it, it, it wasn't, um, it upset her balance. And then it was almost like post-traumatic stress disorder that, that she was um, unable to get past it and unable to get, um, to forget it. And it, it had long-lasting negative consequences. And then that same week I, I was approached by another woman who was saying that a similar thing had happened to her but that she was with friends who were supportive and she went off into a corner and worked through it. And within an hour or so, she was able to at least come to a better understanding in terms of what had happened to her, realize that it wasn't happening now, that that, that was something that um, had influenced all of her emotions, but she didn't need to carry that forward um, as the template for how everybody will react. And she ended up feeling healthier and um much stronger and more loving afterwards but it was the same kind of context the same drug and it was the reaction to the complex material that was different in the two cases and that made all the difference yeah are you guys doing uh, or supporting research in like sort of pure research into neurology for example or is maps pretty much focused on a more clinical approach to therapeutic approach to the use of these things? Um, we're very focused on the clinical research. 
And pure research, um, we don't do it all unless there's some real strong political importance to it. So, again, my background is this combination of wanting to be a psychedelic therapist, learning how to be a psychedelic therapist, but then also, you know, at the Kennedy School, you know, studying the, the politics of um, how we move forward to integrate this into our society. And so from the FDA's point of view, to make a drug into a medicine, we're required to prove safety and efficacy. And every pharmaceutical company faces the same set of requirements. But you don't have to have the vaguest idea of how the drug actually works. <laughs> and and yeah. pure science also is something that has um, no end to it. It just goes on and on and on. And, and particularly when we start talking about brain science, neuroscience, I mean, the brain is one of the most complicated things in the universe. And, um, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, you know, will be spent billions of dollars. I mean, you know, there, there's billion dollar, you know, brain initiatives being talked about. Um, NIDES, actually, National Institute of Drug Abuse, is talking about a $300 million initiative just to look at. Um, scan 10,000 young people when they're 10 and then when they're 21 and see if they've used marijuana and, you know, how their brains might be different. So for us as a small nonprofit, MAPS's annual budget this year is around $2 million. Um, you know, it's going to take around another $18 million or so to make MDMA into a prescription medicine, of which we um, have around five and a half million in the bank already from a bequest from a Shauna Haley. But we have to be very strategic about our uh, resources and we have to focus them in ways that are most likely to bring about um, this transition, you could say, between fear and hope on the part of the public that we've been um, suffering from this massive um, propaganda campaign in order to justify the horrors of prohibition that has demonized these drugs and has emphasized their, overemphasized their risks, exaggerated the risks, and, you know, denied the benefits. And so there's been this enormous reservoir of fear of, you know, parents for their children and everybody, you know, MDMA, one dose, holes in your brain that a lot of people still believe. Um, you know, marijuana leads you to heroin use, mm. all, all these things. Chromosome um, damage. Yeah, yeah, chromosome damage from LSD, all this fear. And so um, for us, the, the therapeutic use is the way to mitigate the fear by getting good evidence that in certain contexts there's more benefits than risks and also give hope for people. And so that's why we've you know, strategically chosen to work with patient populations that the general public really respects and look accepts as being part of the mainstream so for us veterans and soldiers and um, firefighters and police officers you know we have our first police officer with PTSD from uh, work-related PTSD enrolled in our study and so we've really looked at pure research as something that's for other people to do and and we hope that the research that we will fund and generate that demonstrates therapeutic benefits will prompt other people, other governments, major foundations to say, well, how does this really work? Um, but for us, I don't really care how it works and neither does the FDA. So we really appreciate the, the value that, that people place on understanding how something works. But since it's not essential and since we have to be strategic about our resources, 
um, uh, basically, we have nothing to do with peer research. Well, but but the byproduct of what you're doing is, I think, opening up the the way for pure research because you're opening up the possibility of even bringing these substances into a laboratory. Yes, that that is true. That is true. But I would rather, um, you know, for those people that are listening, <laughs> that are thinking about, you know, might want to donate to support research or so, that um, the, the strategic value of trying to move MDMA or, uh, you know, other drugs through the system, um, I think is much higher than trying to figure out how they work. Mm. And that, um, but, but, but again, like, like, for example, Paul Allen, who was one of the uh, founders of Microsoft, um, you know, he donated $25 million to the SETI project, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And that's really, really important, I think, you know, trying to figure out, are we alone in the universe? And, you know, but, but again, you know, when I think about what I'm doing with my life, uh, it wouldn't be any different if all of a sudden some signal comes in from somewhere and, and it turns out it's somebody or some entity or whoever on some other, you know, planet, you know, that, that's alive out there. I, I, it wouldn't change uh, in a minute what it is that I, I'm doing. And so I think for for those people with those enormous resources, um, uh, you know, I hope that they devote them to the search for um, inside the brain, you know, the, the search for inner space. And, and yet we don't yet have those resources. It's easier for people to donate to, uh, I guess, more socially acceptable in a way, and, you know, to, to search for extraterrestrial intelligence rather than to search for uh, human intelligence, which is, you know, sorely lacking. Which is strange because psychedelics have had such a pivotal role in creativity. Yes, but I think it gets back to this question that that um, we were discussing a little bit earlier about you know can a society successfully integrate psychedelics or are are they always this um, somehow or other countercultural you know challenge to to civilization. And I think we're still left with this hangover from the 60s that this work is inherently, you know, corrosive of social structures and that it's always marginalized. Why, if, if you don't think that they're inherently uh, corrosive of social structures, then what is the source of the vehement fear of, of these particular... Because, I mean, as you well know, the criminal... Uh, penalties for for possession or distribution of these substances is far outweighs uh, many other substances and, and in fact is harsher under minimum mandatory sentencing than second degree murder in many states yeah so what's the source of that that well, vehemence I think if we look at, at some of your own work into um, you know monogamy political polygamy, you know, how people's um, desires, in a way, have been channeled by civilization in certain ways. I, I think the fact that psychedelics um, open us up to the things that have been suppressed, and that many of us, you know, have grown up in, in somewhat repressive circumstances where our core desires, our core, you know, our urges and desires you know, and particularly when you're young too, it's and you're the center of the universe. You, you really want, um, 
I guess I should say you, you really want what you want and you're, you're not so um, focused on what other people want that, that um, and, and we see civilization as a way to somehow or other tame these innate desires that are antisocial in some ways or, or that would cause us to get into trouble if we really um, explore fully our desires and our needs. And so I, I think that the fundamental resistance to psychedelics is that we're all scared in a way of parts of ourselves and how do we integrate them and both with, with our own personalities and with society that is trying to channel us in certain ways. And when you take off this veneer of consciousness or the veneer of civilization and you're confronted with these raw desires that are really difficult to understand or to manage or to um, fit within these more narrowly constrained social circumstances, I think it's that we're scared of ourselves and that we're scared of letting go and scared of what that might do and we'll become like rampaging rapists or, you know, plunderers, you know, Vikings plundering and stealing and you know so i i think that that when we bring those kind of energies to the light of day and negative potential in us as well as the positive potential and then learn to try to how we express who we are that it's more about you know what we do than than as we're struggling with these energies i think that the core resistance to psychedelics is the um the fear of ourselves and that every we all have that to some degree and then from a, a bigger sense you know psychedelics really came into western consciousness during the 60s and was aligned with the challenges to the status quo and we, we did have a, a very rigid society at the time of the 60s you know we had um just emerged you could say from the world war ii and the holocaust and, and the power of the irrational of the way people's emotions could be manipulated to to dehumanize, you know, Jewish people and gypsies and gays and disabled people, and to, to you know, massively, you know, murder them. You know that the, the horrors of the power of the unconscious, when manipulated by you know dictators and others, it, it's truly horrific. And I, I think the. Um, the sort of social veneer that, that we create in a way is a um, safeguard against, you know, the power of the irrational, which, which can be inherent, which can be enormously um, destructive. So in the sixties, you know, it was all about rationality. You could say meditation was weird. Nobody meditated. Yoga was a strange cult. You know, death was something you didn't talk about. Birth women were, um, tranquilized men weren't allowed in the delivery rooms, and so when this uh, tools of psychedelics came into more widespread use in a time of this rigid culture that was very much uh, reeling from having to deal with the Holocaust that came about in Western Europe and the the sort of pinnacle of civilization in some ways you could say. And yet, the irrational was so powerful that it, it caused the, the warping of that entire civilization. So I, I think there was this incapable rigidity that um, caused this clash mm. and caused psychedelics to be seen as counterculture and inherently so. 
But that's, I think, what we're struggling to overcome is that there are ways to do this deep dive into the unconscious <clears throat> with sufficient support so that we can purify our intentions and our desires so we can understand them so we can be true to ourselves and find that even deeper is i mean this is the the theory i guess i would say is that even deeper is this sense of connection this that this mysticism is the antidote to fundamentalism and if you go deep enough into ourselves that you'll find that we, we do have this um commonality the, the shared mystical experience of oneness and that that if we can get people and ourselves to really feel that and act from that place, um, then I think we'll have a healthier world where that sort of deep dive, which psychedelics have for thousands of years permitted people to do when our normal minds are kind of defended against that, you could say because of all the survival tasks that we have, we have to stay very focused, that um, I, I think we can, we'll see that these experiences, these substances, are, are not inherently uh, incompatible uh, with our, the social structures that we hope to create, and that the fears of ourselves and these energies that are in us that we, we really just have to acknowledge. I mean, for me, one of the biggest um, experiences of my uh, first DMT trip was you know th this blissful sense of being connected with all of the sweep of history and you know it was just glorious and then I had this thought somehow like hey you're just appropriating all the good parts of history but if everything is in you then Hitler is in you too and it just caused me to plummet into this kind of um, sour deep um, depression in a way but it was true that yeah. that that there is this Hitler within all of us, that, the, that there's parts of me that want to control and dominate and don't care about others, and and acknowledging that and trying to work through that and not act from that place, although that is part of all of our uh, potential, uh, is what we really need to, to do. So I'm ultimately hopeful, again, with this bigger project of integrating psychedelics into our culture and that it can be done in a healthy way. You are one articulate motherfucker, I'll tell you. That was <laughs> that was a hell of a of a speech there. There were several times where I thought, man, I should just stop it right there. That it can't get any better. Uh, that was fantastic. When you were talking about the the various things that we're afraid of and, and running from, you mentioned um, you know, you mentioned birth, you mentioned death, you mentioned so many things, and it occurred to me how ironic it is that I agree with you. I think a lot of the the fear of psychedelics is the fear of life itself, the fear of mortality, the fear of of the thing that we know that no other animal knows, right? Which is that we're all going to die. And how ironic that is in light of the fact that one of the only things that can actually lessen that fear of death is a psychedelic experience. Yeah, well, first off, I would say I don't know really, that no other animals know they're going to die, don't know that they're going to die. I mean, th that is an attempt to try to say that we're, we're somehow or other different than nature and evolution, and we're this, you know, rarefied species that's... So, you know, I, I don't know about that. Um, you know, you, you do get a sense sometimes that 
certain kind of animals when it comes time for them to die they go off by their own they you know dig certain kind of places so yeah there's know, I, there's mourning it, it appears in some animals as well elephants certainly yeah so i i, I don't know that we're that unique but but i i do feel that um what, what psychedelics can help to do and what it helped me to do is be more frightened of not living fully mm. than of dying right and that promotes a certain kind of courage and a willingness to you know try even in view of the fact that we're going to fuck up and make mistakes and it's not going to come out the way we hope and you know, but uh, but I think that that for me, you know, most people you, you hear this about how at the end of people's lives they they talk often about how um, their biggest regrets are not for the things that they did do, but for the things that they didn't do. Right. And I think that fear of not living the life that we have, that we have this precious gift that we didn't ask to be born. We, you know, I mean, again, it depends what you think about reincarnation and stuff, but basically. I think we didn't really ask to be born and you know here this gift is given to us and we have this very short period of time and to to live and do what we can and and I think the um the psychedelics really help us appreciate the preciousness of the moments the, the fleeting nature of the moments that we have and um have caused me and others to to be a little bit more courageous about trying things yeah yeah Listen, uh, I know you've got stuff to do, and uh, I've got this terrible chest cold. I feel like I'm coughing in the ears of my audience here, which is terrible. <laughs> uh, I apologize for that. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with us today. It's it's a real, as I said before, it's you know you're you're one of the few people I know who I think will go down as a historical figure. Mm. Um, I actually sort of in my mind, I've always grouped you together with Dan Savage in a strange way. Oh. I don't know if, if you've ever met him. No, I haven't. You know who he is, though, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the thing that that I, I guess is the similarity I see with the two of you is that uh, a long time ago, the two of you decided to just tell the truth and throw caution to the winds and stick to your guns uh, against a lot of resistance and you were both such fringe characters when I met you 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And now here you are in the mainstream. I see you on fucking CNN with Sanjay Gupta. <laughs> I'm going to be with him tomorrow, by the way. He's speaking at the Kennedy School of Government tomorrow about medical marijuana. Fantastic. Well, yeah. so here you are. I see both of you in the mainstream. But neither one of you has changed. What's changed right. is the stream. You've pulled the mainstream in your direction. And uh, that is an amazing thing to have done, and I really congratulate you for it. Yeah, thank you. And there's, um, you know, I think I'll be um, satisfied once MDMA becomes a medicine accepted by the FDA, which we now are um, predicting will take place in 2021. So we've got another seven years to go, and, um, you know, I'll be able to die happily if... Uh, if that happens, and and even if not, I think it's it's moving in an inevitable direction. I, I think you're right. I think you've changed the momentum, and it's moving in that way. And I think there's a huge amount of energy coming from the fact that so many Americans are suffering from PTSD, and that MDMA seems to be by far the best treatment protocol available. 
It seems so. For, for many people um, who are treatment resistant to other approaches, M- MDMA is remarkable in the reduction of fear and the ability for people to reflect on what caused them to feel traumatized in the first place and to come to a new relationship with the traumatic events, often in ways that enhance, uh, ironically in a sense, enhance their lives, that they, they've learned to appreciate human kindness as something very special, not something to be taken for granted. And they've learned to appreciate uh, the challenge of trying to work emotionally to address issues of conflict. And um, I, I think that the gentleness and the profoundness of MDMA you know, is really what will um, carry the day eventually. And I think it will transform psychiatry and psychotherapy. But, but I would say that more importantly than being a historical figure, it would be one that's taken for granted and forgotten. And that, you know, if you can end up sort of um, accomplishing that people come to take for granted and then they think, oh, yes, it's always been this way. This is the way it should be. Mm. Uh, you know, that, that, then you've really become mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. But in the best possible way, you know, yeah. that's yeah. pull the stream to you. Well, yeah. listen, thank you, Rick. It's, okay. it's a pleasure to chat with you. Always. Thank you too. You said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you ever know said it for a headstone. Soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up Or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Think about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.